Hello, welcome back to Drawing Your Own Path. We're up to episode 9, here at the end of November 2017. You just heard Lionel Hampton and his orchestra playing On the Sunny Side of the Street, featuring Johnny Hodges on the alto saxophone. He's a great player in his own right. Later in that recording, you hear Lionel Hampton with the vocals of On the Sunny Side of the Street and then playing the vibraphone, so it's a great recording. I'll throw a little bit more on at the end, so you can hear that recording made in 1939. The song written just after the Depression, I think it was written in 1930, and was all about changing that attitude, the inner attitude, to be something positive, something something I can use every day, something I try to use every day. And in this episode, I get to talk to Rick Jarrow, something I've wanted to do for a long time. Rick Jarrow is a author, a professor... I'd call him a shaman. He's definitely a really spiritual guy, and we have a really good conversation. I listened to a audio tape that he made many years ago called Opening to Shakti, right around the time when I was looking for some sort of explanation for creativity, and uh, he blew the doors off that source of creativity argument uh, deep into the spiritual upwelling of creative energy, exploring it in a, in a really interesting way. And uh, so I catch up with him after about 10 years since that uh, tape was made and find out what he's up to. Uh, and I think you'll really enjoy the things he has to say about um, doing creative work and how creative work can help the world today. Uh, so that's uh, really a great joy for me, and it's a great benefit for having started the podcast is that I get to approach and speak to people that... Um, whose work that I've read and that I wanted to talk to for a long time. So thank you also for listening uh, and allowing me to do that, helping support that. Another way you could support that work is to go onto Facebook to the group Drawing Your Own Path if you're not already a member and join there so I know that you're around and that you're listening. And also uh, my book, Drawing Your Own Path, is feeling a little lonely over on Amazon. Um could use a little review. I'd love to see a five-star review over there to help us push back up into the rankings. and uh, Or on iTunes as well. Uh, putting five stars on iTunes helps uh, visibility. So those things really cost nothing and uh, really help out uh, the whole podcast a lot. So if you would uh, do one of those, I'll notice it for sure. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'll continue doing interviews. I have... Um, Worked now of eight or nine interviews over the last uh, months, I guess since April, and um, I'm just starting to really get on a roll with how to do the interviews, how to record them, uh, who's interesting to interview, and um, I'm finding many, many people now that I want to interview. So I have a lot of um, interviews lined up and that I want to bring. I, maybe I could get into doing it uh, every other week instead of once a month. Uh, so if you have ideas uh, or if you want to uh, send support, do one of those things I mentioned or send some feedback. The drawingyourownpath.com website has a contact. I'd love to hear from anyone. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Rick Jarrow. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. It's been, uh, it's been uh, something I've thought about for a long time since I heard your program many, many years ago, maybe over 10 years ago. Wow. Wow. So I'm glad that we're able to do this. Yeah, and I got a look at the book, which was great. So that was awesome. 
Cool. And you're not far from me. You're in Poughkeepsie? I'm in Poughkeepsie. Yeah. I'm, I'm, Where are you? I'm in Sugarloaf, New York, which is... Uh, oh, really? Do you know Sugarloaf? I know I know it very well. I, I used to live in Warwick. Oh, okay. Yeah, my kids go to the Warwick schools. And actually, when my uh, before my first book, or not my first book, but Creating Work You Love was published... I was getting a lot of uh, rejects. They wanted me to take out chakras. I didn't want to take out chakras. And uh, I went to, there was some new agey store in, in Sugarloaf where this woman did, does tarot readings. And she was spot on. She said, you know, it's going to go through. Just keep it. I, I remember that very well. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, there's still actually a couple of places where you can get tarot readings in a, in a little 10-store town. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sugarloaf is an amazing town. It reminds me very much of places I've been to in India. It has a special energy there. I really like it. So uh, today I'm going to welcome Rick Jarrow, author, uh, teacher, and someone I've wanted to talk to for quite a long time. Uh, many years ago, maybe uh, 10 years ago, I listened to an audio program, which I can't find online anymore, called Opening to Shakti. Is it still in... The opening to Shakti, which I, for me, is one of my favorites, is the one that, that they let go. And it was published by Sounds True that, that Sounds many years True. ago. Yeah. And uh, yeah, mm -hmm. opening to Shakti was really exciting. Is the, i just curious, is the audio still around? Is the product still around? Um, it might be, like, you might be able to get a remainder on Amazon on a tape. Or uh, yeah, I found like. it on cassette tape. It's a shame, because uh, of all of them, that to me was... You know, probably the most creative and visionary, and that's why it sold the least. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> People weren't ready yet. I don't know. It, it, I, and I have it on MP3, and uh, I have shared it with a few people uh, at the right time. And for me, it was a very uh, perfect uh, transitional uh, recording because it. Uh, I was uh, leaving uh, sort of the realm of scientific materialism and and uh, you know solid belief. And looking for some kind of step down into uh, something more esoteric that still had some substance, and you provided a lot of uh, really good examples in that tape. And uh, you gave really practical, practical things to do, which I found really helpful. And I think that's where your work went after that, because uh, you're known for creating work that you love. Is your is your work creating the work you love? Creating the work you love. When when I hear that, I, I'm reminded of an Alan Watts quote. He describes uh, his interaction with a student, and he's saying, "If money didn't matter." what would you do and mm. sort of takes them through finding that discovering that that you love is that is that how you approach it do you bring people to that's uh, i would put it in the past that's how i approached it um uh, quite frankly for me like creating the work you love is someplace that i've kind of moved on from or moved up from and i'm i'm much more focused right now on the the whole creative realm uh in fact um a number of years ago i had a kind of visitation from a, a spirit guide who called herself l and she said to me that your task in life right now is to stay home and cook slowly and the then the hook came she said if you do that the Maha Nirvana Tantra will reveal itself to you. So I said, wow. Uh, so I'm actually, I've been doing a lot of being at home. Um, I don't know if you ever, there was a, a French, they call him phenomenologist named Gaston Bachelard, who wrote these books, something like the psychoanalysis of fire and um, reverie and dreams of water. And he, he, he has a beautiful piece on the home where he says uh, a house is is a place to dream. So I've been I've been uh, kind of um, going back into my shell and and working from that level, but with a thought about uh, the whole fifth chakra of Shakti creativity about how electronic media. Uh, is helping to obliterate a lot of traditional space-time dimensions, and one of them is the is the dimension between inner inner life and outer life, play and work. 
which puts incredible responsibility on an individual because now you have to organize your own life and make it work. And most people would rather be angry at someone than do that. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm still, I'm still, you know, going around and doing stuff, but, um, I kind of took the paradigm of abundance and kind of moved it into, um, you know, the, the, the known Native American phrase, walk in beauty. And, and like, how can we, you know, how can one do that? What are the ways that we can do that in the midst of the flames all around us? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, you touched on so many things there. That's amazing. And in your modality, at least the stuff I've seen of yours, it, it leads back to art. And it leads back to not an, not an intellectual question, but a real question like is, what is art? Can human beings live without it? And the fact that in mainstream education, art is marginalized uh, to such a degree. And uh, and what it means to really be an artist of your own life and the advantage that Americans might have if they can be humble enough is it's a place we can learn a lot from the indigenous cultures because they've done that and here we are. So that's kind of uh, where I'm at these days. Wow, that's amazing. It's a great catch up <laughs> from where you were to where you And I love the trajectory. I do. It's deepened your thoughts. It's deepened your um, uh, engagement with the creative world. And it's also, I don't know, somehow it's it seems politically engaged a little bit more. I guess maybe we can't not be anymore. Well, um, I'm really careful about that um, because, again, the whole point of creating work you love and moving into opening to Shakti is that um, Machiavelli does not work. Uh, the only authenticity is when your inner life and outer life, you know, resonate with one another. And uh, I've been, it's funny you should mention this. I was thinking about this a lot yesterday that I, I was just not prepared for the levels of, um, hostility, anger, and projection that I've seen on Facebook and in the media from both sides, the right and the left. And um, the funniest one to me is this whole story about the national anthem, yeah. uh, which is pure semiotic. It's pure symbolism. There's not a shred of reality in there. One symbol fighting another. Right. But um, but the question is, to me, um, how can you have both uh, freedom and trust? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is the political issue, because we are we have become accepted, uh, accepting of like lying has become a way of life. Mm -hmm. We expect politicians to lie. We expect advertisers to lie. Um, you know, we expect you know, the AMA to lie and the CDC to lie. So, um, but nevertheless, people still, when a person who is, who you trust, who you, who socially, you have an idea of trust them, for example, a priest uh, abuses kids. We, we, you know, that hits, still hits the nerve. Oh, sure. And I think what people have to see is that, um, you know, ideally, being a police officer is a kind of priesthood. It, you know, it's that kind of commitment. It's that kind of stature. It's that kind of trust. And if that trust is violated, my God. And that's what I think is is not people don't want. People would rather be angry. Yeah. Rather, you know, and um, so the but the whole the, for me, the reason I brought that up is because the political for me, the political action or discourse doesn't work if it's coming from a place of me versus you us versus them it's just it's just um deepening the wound which is what's happening and when the wounds get deep enough you need an explosion uh, so mm. um yeah you know it's funny because in opening to shakti I don't know if you remember, did this whole piece on William Blake. Yes. Yeah, and 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 you know, one of Blake's things was that the apocalypse is a is an inner process. And, yeah. um, 
but, or, or, or the uh, the country the country as a whole in her process yeah yeah uh so it's i, I would call it um i don't know it's very cliche to say holistic view but really looking at ways like the things I think need to dialogue with each other are art, community, and economics. Um, and, uh, and then underneath, underneath all those three things is some type of spiritual sensibility. Mm. Mm. That's, Not, that's well put too. I, I love, I love your, the freedom and trust, uh, balance. That's really, I think that's a good distillation of where it's at. That, yeah. that, uh, uh, we have to be open enough to allow other and the other, the person who's not us, to do what they want, and trusting enough that they're not going to violate the boundaries. Uh, and and the reactive, uh, the reaction is to clamp down, right? The the uh, if we're if we're frightened, we re we restrict, we make a wall, or we prohibit, or something like that, or we or we put people in jail. And, and manipulate popular culture with symbols, which is just what Hitler did so well. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough balance. How do you reopen trust when uh, everyone is claiming everyone else is lying? And right, uh, it's a, it's, a, it's definitely a, a, a time uh, for calm heads. And uh, I also, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching uh, meditation through um, creative practice. Uh, because that's my path, and also because it seems so timely to get people to uh, open up to themselves and just see what will happen if they just draw whatever they draw and just do whatever they do. Yeah, yeah. And and um, why have so many people abandoned their creative potentials? Uh, or they've been encouraged to by... Um, the pressure to survive. And I see this, I have a, my youngest daughter is still in high school, so last year in high school, and I see the conspiracy, they get these kids so busy doing homework. For what? That they lose all creative um, space. Yeah, it's true, and uh, we, we've gotten so, um absorbed in um, reality being uh, physically measured and fact-based and uh, progress tied to technology and innovation uh, that we devalue things we can't measure for instance the value of having created a drawing today unless we yeah. could possibly sell it so it's, right. it's tied to economics it's tied to capitalism it's tied to, to yeah uh, uh, scientific progress, which can be measured, and and so, but because it can't be measured, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know. Well. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, in, in many ways, by going in, it, it it affects the outer. I see that. Yeah, I see the shift. I think we 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 clear on how that goes we're not clear on how it's going to clear uh it's going to end <laughs> we're not clear on how it's going to clear itself up but um, well i i i feel the way i deal with that is um is it already is clear mm. um because we are already clear mm. um it's just a matter of taking our heads out of the sand mm. and whatever's going on in around us that seems so appalling is actually nothing new. This has always been happening, you know, whether people invading villages, burning women at the stake. I mean, it's always, um, and, and, um, it, it, so it's not going to be fixed. It's, it's when it's like Gurdjieff had a good one because his center's out near where you live. That's you right. Know, the, yeah. He used to say, you can't even tell the truth if you wanted to, because who is it that, you know, there's, you have so many different selves working that you don't know who's saying what, when. Um, right, and depending on what your desires are and your biases are, right, your, your, your truth who can shift, or your truth might be self-serving, or your truth might be universal. So, you know, to me, like, the, the, the great revolutionary act is to declare yourself an artist. <laughs> Uh, and, and, you know, and I, and I, in that I would define an artist as someone who 
they're not working for commodification. They're, you know, they're working for inspiration. And, and the trust is that you'll get what you need. Um, I'm, I pretty much live that <laughs> these days on the, you, you, I, it was like a jumping off a cliff going, uh, finally just becoming an artist full time. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it is like that. And I do think that, that the, the tension persists and it's just more a matter of seeing the conflicts as they exist rather than thinking that they'll go away or you could solve them in some way because yeah, for, for centuries, thousands of years these uh the tension between freedom uh uh and and security have have always existed i see that very much playing out in the social sphere in that you know when you have somebody who shoots up hundreds of people and you know which is a regular occurrence in the united states these days mm. everybody laments the, the like people trace it to the the tearing of the social fabric and the loss of community and people falling through the, the cracks. And I believe that's true. On the other hand, we have histories of totalitarian communities, be they fascist, religious, ideological, that control people and give them no space at all. Mm -hmm. And so like to me, the, the challenge is can we figure out ways or move toward ways of realizing freedom within community and community within freedom. Cause we, we obviously need both. Yeah. That's beautiful. Moving toward freedom, finding ways to provide freedom or call attention to freedom within community. Cause you know, you can move to California and live by yourself <laughs> and, and call it freedom. But then, you know, I, how many, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, you know, there was a book years ago, Philip Slater called it In Pursuit of Loneliness and, and, and living facsimile lives online without any real interaction. I mean, this is the fate of the illusory freedom, which is I am independent. Mm. Mm -hmm. As opposed to like, you know, the freedom of creativity where who I am is given space and appreciated. Yeah, it's discovered, constantly discovered. Constantly discovered. I like that. Yeah. yeah. That's that for I, that for me is a real freedom to to be able to not be one thing but just to find out every day who I am. I've been working with it's just the universe is so exquisite when I got this message to stay home and cook slowly. Two houses down from where I lived, a a, a renowned permaculture guy moved in. <laughs> and we started hanging out and he has been helping me recreate a pretty simple backyard. But one of the things he says, quoting the Masons, is that you have to move the stones at least four times before they marry. Yeah. So this idea of constantly discovering, uh, he won't sketch a plan off-site. Everything has to be on-site, and it's continually um, movable. All right. In the, mo in the moment. In the moment, yeah. discover. Yeah, yeah. So not the idea of what he wants, but exactly what's happening when he's there. I love that. I have a question for you. In opening to Shakti, you talk about a piece of wood that you discovered and you carved and you polished. And do you still have that yeah. piece of wood? That's a really cool question. <laughs> a great question. I gave that piece of wood away February 2017, so not long ago. Wow. And, and this is what I do, like, after uh, an object has given me its gift, then I want to recycle it and find someone. And this is the greatest gift giving. And it also um, allows me to keep discovering things instead of being submerged in an avalanche of tchotchkes, you know? It's so, perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. I, love, I love that you're able to release it. Yeah. That you find it, it plays its role in your life, and then off it goes. So and that's such a good feeling to give it away. Like it's, it's one of the best feelings that I know. Did, did you give it to a person? Did you give it to someone who w would get something from it? Yes. Okay, yes. that's wonderful. That's that is a gift. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's. I just want to step back because we didn't really do it at the beginning, but just to say you're a professor at Vassar, which is in I still am. Yeah, yeah, in religious studies department. 
Officially, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but p- previous to that, I just want to kind of know, because uh, you have a, a great knowledge uh, and experience in both West- Eastern and Western traditions, and you seem to have traveled. Can you give us just a kind of a synopsis I'll, of where you came I'll from? I'll give you the narrative, but just with the preface that it's all illusion. Okay. <laughs> it's all a dream. It's not in time. But in this lifetime, I... Uh, I was walking through, I was, uh, I was just up in Cambridge. So I was, I was walking through the hallways at Harvard. I got to Harvard, uh, as a student and I was incredibly frustrated. Uh, I didn't see any sense in the way anyone was living their lives. No one was speaking to me. And as I walked through the hallway, I heard a voice that sound, I really liked this voice and I followed the voice and in a room the the voice was coming out of a tape recording of Ramdas uh, and talking about India and Neem Karoli Bob and I did it just like my god it's like someone hit me by lightning and so speaking about giving things away uh just a year and a half ago I felt I needed to close that loop so I went to Hawaii oh yeah and I uh ran into Ramdas and I just told him I really need to thank you I listened to those tapes I bought those tapes I listened to them every day for months mm. I, I drove a cab. I dropped out of school and drove a cab. During the day, listened to those tapes. And he said to me, you know, because for him, everything is Maharaji, his guru. Sure. And, and he said, do you have a relationship with Maharaji? And I said, I have a relationship with you. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing he said, and, you know, he, he since his stroke, his voice is not that he's big. He said, he said to me, he said, those, those tapes, he said, those tapes were Maharaji. <laughs> so inspired by, and you know, Ramdas was doing in those days a synthesis of East and West. And my mother had been a student of Abraham Maslow. Ah, uh, okay, sure. And, and here's Ramdas talking about you know hierarchy of human needs, Maslow, and combining them with chakras. So I went off to India, and um, after I drove a cab to pay for it, and to my surprise. Or just shock, because I, I didn't know what to expect. I loved India. I loved the culture. I loved the food. I loved the living with the earth. I just felt at home. Mm. And um, I never thought I'd leave. I said, you know, I found a place that makes sense. I had a couple of friends who had taken their passports and thrown them in the Ganges mm-hmm. and declared themselves dead. I was headed in that direction. But, you know, Jung, someone once asked uh, Carl Jung, um, what are the great, you know, how have you experienced God in your life? And he said, well, I don't know about God, but it's the, the closest thing I've come to God is when something has happened that I wasn't expecting, I wasn't planning, and that changed my life. Mm. So in my case, I was in India, and of all places, in Brindaban, the home of Krishna in North India, I found a, a little manuscript of Jung's. Huh where he was talking about how important it is to work through the archetypes of your own culture, not just go to Tibet or, you know, Peru. And when I read that, I got viscerally angry. <laughs> so that was re- something real was happening. Okay. And, and within a year of reading that, I was back in the West and I got myself, it was easier to get money then. I got myself scholarships to Columbia University, drove a cab again, and created my own major in English slash, in those days they called it Oriental Studies. Right. I was putting the East-West thing together. But uh, there are two other strands, which I just share with you, that showed up at that time. They were both teachers. One was Hilda Charlton, who held court for like 15 years in uh, St. John the Divine's Cathedral, she was a, a yogini and meditation, you know, wonderful teacher. But in particular, her whole thing was spirituality in the world. Don't escape the world. Like she do things like, how do you answer a phone and not get your aura messed up? Wow. Stuff. And um, every once in a while when I was sitting with Hilda and we had someone come in who was, quote, strung out, she would say, you got to take him to Orestes. Who is Orestes? I finally met him. He was a Cuban uh, santo, a, a kind of shamanic healer. And a number of us developed a relationship with him. 
And for years we sat with him and worked with him. But I, I think that the two things that Orestes offered was one, getting out of the rational, like working with quote spirits and energies. And two, for me, he, he modeled what a strong, open-hearted male could be. Mm. Mm. You know, what is it to, to work with a man who was a real man? Like he had the masculine energy, but his heart was completely open and he was patient and work. And just seeing that day after day, year after what year. A, what a great, was, uh, great archetype uh, and um, model for today that we could use. Yeah. It was, yeah. We're so caught up in that, in the uh, closed masculine, the controlling masculine seems to be such a dominant symbol, right? Yeah, or the out of control, the, or the manic mess, whatever you <laughs> exactly. want to call it. Um, you know, that old, remember that old book, there was, it was by Gillette and Moore, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, like the four masculine archetypes. Oh, right. And they said like the workaholic and the controlling masculine, you know, the controlling masculine is the misaligned king. The workaholic is a misaligned warrior. And when it gets more misaligned than workaholism, you get the massacres and the genocides. Yikes. Yeah, I see that. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, um, couldn't you say more about Orestes? Orestes, well, um, it's hard to say anything about Orestes because he never said anything. Huh. He never taught. He had no syllabus. He had no teaching. He would simply, you know, we'd have a group in a circle. He'd have a bowl of water. And with a crucifix behind it and people would come for healing and he was always the last step you know people stage four cancer broken spines whatever mm. he'd have you put your head on the bowl of water and he'd start telling you all this stuff uh and and so with us what he did was he'd say what do you see just share what you see so he encouraged us to open our intuition mm. And then he say things like, Mr. Rick, use your Indian. Mr. Rick, you. So, you know, what, what neurolinguistic programming says about modeling really worked with Orestes because years later, I was working with someone. You know, a lot of my, I hate this word, coaching. I don't like it. I'm sorry. I don't know what to call it. Consulting, a lot of it has always been like my baseline has always been the astrological paradigm. That's what I learned very young. And one day I was working with someone and I saw myself, um, all, this, all this information started coming in. And, and then I remember, my gosh, you know, Orestes used to tap the desk all the time with a pencil. So it was like an, it an anchor. Yeah, it was like that model that had anchored into me just by hanging out with him. So the old way of learning was not paying money for a workshop or reading a book. You hang out with who you want to learn from, and you just figure out a way to hang out with them. And, you know, we hung out with Orestes for years, and um, it was a beautiful mutual flow. He learned English. He learned about our culture. We learned from him. and But he was that really, uh, you know, I didn't know what it could be, what it meant to be a strong masculine, because so much of the spiritual teaching that filtered through in the new age is feminine mm. and it's beautiful. But like, even like Hilda's work would always be from the heart chakra up, you know, and everything is beautiful and, and, and lovey dovey. And, and then Orestes would just go, boom, you know, we had that first chakra and he was rooted on the earth and he wouldn't take shit from anybody. And he just, he anchored the masculine, but he never abused it. He was so present for people. Mm. I once saw him work with a woman in a wheelchair. Her son brought the woman, and you know the woman had a lot of beliefs, uh, so he never told her that he was working on her. Yeah. He just had a conversation, and the whole time, you know. So that was, it was, uh, it was as much being in his presence as it was the, any words that were spoken. That's what it was. That's what it was. And what do you, what do you think? If I just had to drill down in the science side what was what's going on there what's going on with someone with such a strong presence it's a really good question and um explanations can blunt the instrument however um i would say that he was incredibly energetically connected to his vocation mm. 
his stream of calling. In fact, he used to he used to exhort people. He used to say, "You have to swim in your own river. If you swim in someone else's river, you'll drown." Mm. And um, a lot of that came through um, the ability to go into vision, envisioning, and also vibratory rates that you know the scientists are now doing with machines. But he could do it with chance and with visions that he had learned from his teachers. In other words, one of the one of the things he'd do, like when he, there was one particular Indian guide, whenever you went to meet him, he'd have you go to the same place. So you anchored in this place on the astral and it became as real as your living room. And, you know, this is not a new process in the what's that called? The um, art of memory in the you know, oh, right. um, the memory palace. Yeah, exactly. Like this is how they learn speeches. And the interesting thing about the art of memory in the so-called Renaissance, the Tibetans do the same thing in mandala practice. Huh. And whenever they're constructing a mandala, they, each it's a palace, and they, each part has different mantras and visions. And they visualize DVD. it as 3D when they look at the mantra, yeah. I mean at the mandala. Yeah, so the whole thing of opening to Shakti, to me, is we're at a, thre a, a threshold as a culture where we're being asked to amp into the creative imagination, not as a diversion, but as an aligned next step in who we are. Um, and and I, I think I think that says a lot of fear in that. I think that we're seeing a lot of fear because we're at the point where we either have to let go or we have to really clamp down, right? I mean, it, and yeah, the border and whenever, the borders are threatened to be dissolved right now. Well, they are dissolved. It's just that you know we hold on for dear life. Yes. <laughs> I've had a really we have to build a wall. <laughs> I've seen this in a very poignant way in the last five years. Uh, I've I've been witnessing my mother, you know, gradually lose her mind. You know, they call it Alzheimer's or dementia, but she's a very strong-minded woman. And I, the first couple of years, like fighting for dear life, writing everything on the walls to try to remember, you know, remember everything and what day it is and what time it is. And sooner or later, you're forced to let go. And um, when she began to let go with a, you know, a struggle, you know, force, uh, so much sweetness has come into her and so much, wow. you know, a whole new kind of openness that I never knew. So we're being asked, you know, it's, it's this death struggle and it's going on in so many ways. And my only solace, because, of course, the calculating mind wants to know who's going to win, what's going to happen um, my colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Gerald Epstein, the Kabbalistic uh, visualization guru, he once, I once brought him to Vassar to give a lecture on something, and someone asked him, what's the future of the environment? Some you know, question like that. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't answer that. And they said, why not? And he said, because it violates the fourth commandment. And I said, and you know, they said, what? what? He said, the fourth commandment says, thou shalt not bear false witness. And anytime you speculate on the future, you're bearing false witness. No. So the real courage to me is to be, to do it in the moment and to really concentrate as much energy here and let that ripple into wherever it has to. Um, everyone has their own role. Some people's their role is to make the streets safe, and some people's role is to make cybersecurity safe. But remember, uh, Ezra Pound one, had this uh, saying that the artist is the antenna of the race. Hmm. So it's not seeing the future; it's divining the opening of of where we're going. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's good. Yeah, when I started my eye um, uh, clock site, my daily drawing site, I named it Divination Drawing. Nice. And, nice. <laughs> and so I respond very, very well to that. Yeah, that, that somehow um, we're by, by everything we touch, whether it's the media, whether it's the trees outside, whether it's people we talk to, somehow we're, we're uh, reading all that into what we draw, especially when we draw improvisationally. It's, oh all, it's all coming through. So that's just kind of uh, unearthing the unseen or, or distilling. And, and, and the subconscious has a way of sort of ranking and filtering things so that they come out in some order of, of importance to us. Have you seen Jung's Red Book? Oh, yes, sure. Yeah, yeah. 
the amazing thing to me about the Red Book is, well, one of the amazing things is the family kept it secret for 25 years because it was how the culture couldn't handle it. Yeah. Here's this imaginal psycho masquerading as a scientific doctor, but he's visionary. He's, he's way out there. And, um, but there, I think there's a really interesting tie in here in terms of the creative spirit. And this is what Odeste's had. Um, and we don't think in these terms, um, the late James Hillman, who I consider one of my mentors once said in his comment on the red book that the great task of the human beings are to come to terms, to reconcile with the dead. Hmm. And by the dead, uh, he meant the entire sweep of human history. Now, other cultures have living connections to the ancestors. That's what Odestes had. He had his father, his, his grandmother. He had Our ancestors are books. Mm. Our ancestors are, you know, Picasso was an ancestor. And it, it's, it's through the recycling of the ancestral connection mm. that we can found the imagination. Mm, I love that. Because one of the really challenging things for visionaries is not to, is not to go crazy. Yeah, I was you know my favorite poets Northwest you know Richard Brodigan, Lou Welsh they both like blew their brains out you mm -hmm. know. Okay, Gary Snyder's still with us. You know, Allen Ginsberg lived a full life. Uh, what does it take to do that? Well, I think they were both very much aligned with ancestral, and when I say ancestral, I'm not necessarily esoterically. You know, Ginsburg in 1948 had this vision of William Blake. He saw himself as as an incarnation, not literally of Walt Whitman, you know, carrying that right. through. And, and part of the job is to, to not only acknowledge the past, but to see the future. Like Ginsburg was the first poet who, who publicly recognized the fact that Bob Dylan is a poet, not just a, you know, right. whatever finger. And so, you know, to ground in the ancestors to me is is something we're just relearning. One of the things Skip, my permaculture colleague, keeps saying when we're digging in the back and going through earth and finding rocks and finding bone and all kinds of stuff down there, he says the ancestry is everywhere. Mm. It's everything, mm. every leaf. Um, so this re, you know, the reconnection with the earth is, is more than ecological sentiment. It's really about, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Before I, before I, um, got, um, uh, fully realized to be an artist when I was still, um, in the practical mode of doing science, I moved from physics further and further over until I ended up into ge in geology. Right, right, and it was right. geology was where I had the the real resonance because I suddenly got back onto the rocks and their history and the and the ancestry of the whole land we're standing on. It's amazing. It's incredible. Um, I have a friend, a colleague at Vassar, who's a geologist slash Buddhist, who takes us out standing on these rocks and tells us, "Well, this was an ocean four billion years ago," and you're sitting there, "Oh my," you know. Uh, <laughs> but to have this, the, you know, Whitman said, "I know the amplitudes of time." And the artist opens to the amplitudes of time and space. And, and, and the popular culture is trying to constrict that. Most people don't have an attention span longer than a couple of minutes. I'm sorry, so what did you say? <laughs> most people don't have an attention span. More than, oh, you got me. <laughs> got me. Just joking. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> It's true. We check these devices, we get a little dopamine hit, you know, and then we have to check them a few seconds later because it's worn off. And did someone write me? It's I don't know what's happening. I'm very concerned about that these it days. Very, yeah, it was very it, you I encapsulated my experience. And I, too, am concerned because especially I see I see how my kids live with it. But me, too. And um, but I don't think the answer is to, as Robert Bly once suggested, to take an axe to your television set. Um, we have to develop a creative relationship with this stuff. That's my feeling. And Orestes, yeah, to finish up with Orestes, the other thing that was so wonderful about him was as a strong man, he never tried to coerce you onto a particular path. 
like I used to go to his meetings and when I was at his healing sessions, I was also a graduate student. So during the breaks, I'd be reading and other people complained to him to say, hey, Rick's breaking the energy with the books. And he'd say, no, no, that's what Mr. Dick does. Yeah, beautiful. And he, yeah. And he just said, like, you know, you do you, whatever you is, you do that. If you're if uh, you're true to yourself and congruent with yourself. Yeah. You're putting out and the right that, energy. And, and Hilda Charlton used to say the same thing. She used to say, kids, like, take what I say and make it your own. You know, don't don't be me. Make it your own, kids. And and that yeah. takes a lot of. Um, I don't know what's a good word. Chutzpah. Yeah, some uh, trust. <laughs> trust. Yes. Trust. Yeah. And um, especially when um, it's not you're not getting the rewards. Yeah, well, you're not. Yeah, you're not getting something uh, not physical in, in return, public. recognition. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it is. But to 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 do the work, to do the work on yourself, regardless, is really it's a challenge, but it's so important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Okay, so they're almost like your like your spiritual mom and dad for that. Yeah, time. exactly. And and that and that all coalesced for me because. I was getting the uh, academic education at Columbia, um, the kind of spiritualist, shamanic education with Orestes, and told this thing was just how to live it in the world. Um, and um, yeah, beautiful. And then from from there, it was is really a question of of trusting um, whatever your destiny might be, um, not fatalism, right? But, being willing to um, invoke your most authentic destiny, not the fear base, uh, which is so prevalent, but getting beyond the fear base. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's beautifully said. Yeah, and it re- leads us right to where I want to go, which is uh, which is that um, you know the uh, group that I'm working with and the whole thing that came out of the book was where the contemplative. Uh, traditions and the creative traditions sort of overlap and how they reinforce each other. So when I work with artists, it's to help them discover what they have to say, you know, who they are and what they have to say. And when I work with uh, people who are uh, uh, maybe too busy or restless to sit and meditate, it's how to get that energy out using physical-based tools and things. So I want to I want to riff on creativity a little bit if we can. You know, there's an ancestor of yours in Warwick, who was in Warwick. Uh, Frederick Frank. Frank. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and Frederick, um, he, he used to uh, have some really interesting um, kind of riffs on, on that creative process. And one of them was, he said at one point, he said, I put down my paints and I started drawing as if my life depended on wow. it. And another one, he said, look, he said, I, meditation isn't my thing. I'm, I just don't have the where it's not my component. So what do I do three times a week, drive into New York in the VW van, open the doors and sketch people all day. That's my meditation. Mm. And I think I think um, the 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 popularization of mindfulness uh it's not unfortunate. It's just the way it is in our culture. It's it's coming in through the scientific community because that's where things get validated. I think, you know, Richie Davidson of Wisconsin, they're getting millions of dollars of grants to study mindfulness and, and um, you know, but I would also like to see it equally that influx coming in through the artistic community. Uh, art, not as merely as performance, not as personal expression, but as like is like the mindful gift to the culture. Yes. And you know, we've we've uh, when you make things that are beautiful, and you make food that is beautiful, and when your whole life turns into art, uh, I, you know, happiness doesn't even come close to that level of participation in reality. And when you don't do that, then you have to kind of spend your time wondering who's winning or losing, which is what the media wants you to do. So I think the, the it's not just a revolutionary subversive. I think the healthy, uh, you know, th- that's why I think we, I, I always look for venues that open to um, not just professional artists, but just art within life. 
one thing which uh, was connected to opening to Shakti, I did it many years ago for about three years in New York City. We had a thing going called the Temple of Beauty, which was a spontaneous fusion. We met once a month and we had poets, musicians, uh, just people. And it was it would people would fuse music, art, dance, um, spoken word. And there was very little agenda. Like sometimes we'd announce the theme for the evening, but it would be spontaneously created. Yeah. Sure. There were a few people who helped facilitate, but um, it was remarkable to me. Uh, and I just saw it again in Cambridge. So much living art in indigenous cultures day. So that's kind of like my, I have such great um, respect for the potential of art to heal the soul and not to be marginalized in museums or... Right, but a living know, thing. Yeah, um, and um, wow, wow. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm trying to do in my life. Yeah. Yeah, I see it, and I, I get it. I get it. Let's turn it even further toward that energy, that that sort of living energy. I mean, it, uh, it in that tape you'd call it Shakti, but really, what's happening? What's 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 the cosmology there? In, in well, I can only tell you like my experience. I don't know sure, what it is, sure. but I will. I, I I just will say like the there are two worldviews which are really interesting around Shakti that came out of India, and I would call them competing. One says, you know, the, the dance is said to be between Shakti and Shiva. And Shiva is the witnessing, all-pervading consciousness, and Shakti is the ever-moving world. Mm. So in the, in the yogic, old yogic paradigms, they said that Shiva is the witness to the dance of Shakti. He gets caught in the dance. And the goal is for him to extricate himself, extricate the witness from the world. And that are, those are the paradigms of renunciation. And you find this in both Hinduism and Christianity, the idea that there is a self beyond the world, which devalues the world. Mm -hmm. um, the other paradigm, which we could call the tantric paradigm, and is that Shiva and Shakti are interpenetrating and their goal is to dance together in freedom like again trust and freedom right. how do you how do you get those that those two things to happen that you could be in the world as play instead of as burden and and so um that to me is uh, where it goes the most beautiful word for my money in the sanskrit language is a word called lila which means play the world as the divine play but the art, you know, if everything is Leela, then everything you do, if you get to that space, then you're free. And Francesco Clemente, you know, the artist, sure. him, um, he once said that he felt, he didn't use the word Leela, but he said he felt that Andy Warhol had achieved that. He called it a ritualized life. Hmm. And he said, because by the end, Everything Andy Warhol did was an art form, including going shopping. It was a big event. Come on, we're all going to go shopping. Um, he bought a lot of bought a lot of that, cookie jars, as I understand. Yeah, they'd all go and they'd so, buy the cookie uh, jars. <laughs> In my case, it has been taking what I have, which is a house, and instead of just having a house as a place that you live in, then you go out and do what you do in the world excavating both physically and psychically mm. um, to the roots of the house, literally into the earth, into the people who lived here before, into the wood, into how you place things in the house, into mm. um, and having it become the teacher. And then seeing who shows up. Cats, Newman. Yes. Uh, uh, I love uh, it. I love it. The process is the teacher. Yeah, and that's what it is right now, the process of of being home. Okay, I teach at Vassar, but Vassar is uh, five minutes from my house. Um, one second. Um, I think that's – hi there, Dennis. I'm online here, so make yourself home. Since um, Yeah, you never know who's going to show up. Yeah, you see? There you go. Someone showed up. Uh, <laughs> we have to see and, who showed uh, up. <laughs> yeah, and, and the interesting is also um, – 
One thing about creativity, which I tried to get an opening to Shakti and art, can we get away from the notion that is it's a purely individual endeavor? Yeah. Or how can we get away from that notion? And a, a couple of ways is one for me is to see it in the realm of giving and receiving. Like your art is an offering and then you receive back. Um, Lewis Hyde, the anthropologist, talked about this as the gift culture versus the consumer culture. And the, and the other one is um, literally when I'm making anything, whether it's a soup or a painting, it's who am I offering this to? Oh, that's beautiful. You know, um, and, and, and that to me really connects to more than an individual, but um, an intrapersonal process. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it brings you right to the the mo the part of the the part of opening to Shakti, which I returned to, and um, I don't know what if maybe it drew me to ask you to do this interview or whatever. But but what happens in my drawing is that I draw improvisationally, and uh, over the course of time, some things persist, some symbols persist, or some image persists, and I always pay that attention that wants to come forward. And usually, it has a message, and it when I finally sort of get the message, it goes away, and a new thing comes up. And maybe for the last six months, these vessels, I've been drawing these vessels, little bowls and jars and things like that. And then I remembered that at the end of opening the Shakti, you're, uh, you're, you talk about the vessels. You talk quite a yeah. bit about people finding their vessels. And, uh, right. and I, was seeing, I was seeing this podcast and my work in teaching uh, the drawing as, the, as a creating a vessel, the online community and the Facebook community as a vessel. So I wanted to... Give give that to you and see what you had to say about the vessels themselves as well. F people finding those. Well, I I, I I do have something to say about that because I've learned something, you know, since I then. And one of the things I'm learning is that one of the you know one of the great vessels, however you do it, is ceremonial community. A community where people can gather. You know, um, Joan Halifax. Do you know? Sure. Or, you know, she 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 put it really well. She said, "In in the council or in the circle, there's there it's not top down. There's no hegemony. There's no leader. Uh, we gather together. You know, someone may facilitate whoever has the talking stick, but it, but in the ceremonial community, there is room to make music, to make art, to you know, to offer. Um, it's so that's one thing of really having a gathering place." where the artistic gift is offered um yeah, and valued and yeah and and to make this um i'm going to go out on a limb here um i have friends who teach mindfulness and things like that and they and they you know thinking in terms of popular culture they say that the only the way that the only way that America can be transformed is through some form of Christianity because uh, it's so overwhelming. I, I, I'm I'm not sure about that at all. I I feel that what is going to transform America is the fact that we're living on Turtle Island. Uh, that this is not a knockoff of Europe. This is a new fusion. And the same thing happened in India thousands of years ago. You had a northern culture and a southern culture that fused in incredible creativity, incredible form and music. And, and so finding ways to, um, to come together in ceremonial space that are free, uh, that to me is one of the things that is being, you know, the other thing is, which I'm not that adept, I don't know as much, but you do, is I do think somehow the electronic interface is going to offer, aside from all the ways it's not be used well, to be used wisely. And my, my big revelation of this was, of course, when years ago my son got, got the first, um, what do you call them, touchscreen phone in the family. And the minute I saw it, I, I realized that, my God, the, the age of print is over. Yeah. The Guttenberg galaxy is over. It's interfacing of image, sound, and print. Like, And this 
is it going to create new art forms and new collaborations and people like um i, I wish i could give you his name because i but the, the book he wrote was who owns the future uh tech guy but there are a lot of uh tech people who are talking about the the vision of guaranteed absolute income through technology that's going to happen then everyone either becomes an artist artist or becomes uh an addicted television watcher you know that <laughs> so, um, let's hope and, for the artists <laughs> yeah and then to, again um, I think the challenge also is to step off the money train and by that I don't mean not working I don't mean not receiving money you know money is beautiful energy but I mean measuring your value by how much you make and sacrificing your time to doing things that are antithetical to your soul um that that then then you then there's a space you know a space for art so the word i used in a more recent uh book cd called the alchemy of abundance um i don't use the word uh art per se i simply call i use a practice of abundance oh yeah it's oh, yeah. something you can do every day that just connects you with the with whatever you you know with the universe whatever you call it. Do you know Alice Miller's stuff? No, I don't think so. You because she was a big time uh, Swiss psychiatrist, uh, and she wrote the, her well known book is called The Drama of the Gifted Child. Oh. And she writes about how parents coerce children. But her story is that she was in psychotherapy for fourteen years. She said and didn't get anywhere. And then she began free drawing. <laughs> I got to look and, her up. <laughs> yeah, and that opened everything up for her. Yeah, it did for and, me, for sure. Uh, so can people find their form of free drawing? Yeah, well, it, 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 it aligned so well with the, when you talked about the vessels in that tape, because it was, and you found one person's was, uh, was uh, creating the space for charity, creating the space for giving. You know, it was, wasn't even a, an act of doing. It was... Uh, uh, your creative vessel could be the way you, that you mow the yard or wash the dishes. Your creative vessel could be the way you walk. There were so many avenues, and but it's really discovering that shakti inside yourself and how it yeah. wants to be expressed. And and the nice, I like the word discover as opposed to like find or plan because it's already there. It just has to be uncovered. It's like you don't have to worry about it. Your own vessel, it, it's there. And, um, and it just you know what turns you on. If you can just yeah. be honest with yourself and and fa and face it, you know what excites you. To, to follow that is even more exciting. But it's also f fearful because where will it take you? Oh my God! Uh, it just wants an invitation. That's it. Just open the door for it. <laughs> so, um, if people want to find out uh, more about Rick Jarrow and and get in touch or get some of your many books or your audio programs i know you still do workshops and you're around here doing things and in new york city well that could be a little hard to do because i'm on retreat but um i do have a website you know rickjarrow.com j-a-r-o-w and all my stuff is there and then sounds true website has all my stuff on sounds true and even on amazon you know creating the work you love it's all there um i have been Follow, you know, I had to follow my inner guide said stay home and cook slowly. So I just have been doing less and less uh, and enjoying more and more. That's amazing. But, you know, because I have a nature, a Sagittarian ascendant, I am a traveler. I'm sure traveling and moving around will happen again. But I, I feel it's time that the sharing and the whole thing has to go up a notch. Yeah. Before, because the other thing is happening so powerfully the what do you call it, the avalanche of negativity right um and um particularly um i i do a lot of work interestingly enough with the the generation younger than me which is really you know really great you know 30 year olds who are just moving into it and you know and i it, to me they're living proof that there is evolution they're not hung up on all the stuff we were hung up on, you know, race, gender, nationality, you know, they're open, so open. But again, it's where is the vessel? How can we create the vessel so I can be creative 
and and survive right. and uh, and thrive and um it just feels that we're on the crest of that possibility. Yeah, that's wonderful. Optimistic message. So we open to Shakti. We open to Shakti. Yeah, so I, obviously I would sit here and talk to you for several more hours, but I respect your time, and I told you an Thank hour. You. And uh, and, I, and I'm so, so, so grateful that you would come on and uh, talk, and I know that the, uh, the people that listen to this will really benefit from it. And uh, so... There it is. Thank you so much, Rick Jarrow. Great, Thank you for being great connecting. Really great. Take care. So, wow, I hope you enjoyed Rick Jarrow as much as I did. I feel really great about that positive, really optimistic message from someone who's so immersed in the creative process, who analyzes, who follows his intuition. A really fun, really interesting person to talk to. I'm going to leave you here with Lionel Hampton's orchestra, Lionel Hampton on vibraphone, Johnny Hodges on alto saxophone, on the sunny side of the street. 